Welcome to the ThinkSpace podcast with myself, John Stoskowski and Danny Massaro. Our goal with this podcast is a simple one. We discuss and dissect a prescient topic, issue or theme that we think is interesting and might help us humans better understand why we think, feel and do what we do. If you'd like to engage in these types of conversations too, you can check out thinkspace.academy for a unique cohort-based course that will help you think critically and live authentically. Hope you enjoy the episode. So Viktor Frankl was an Austrian psychiatrist, author, and most importantly today for what we're going to talk about, Holocaust survivor. And it was, so it was 1942 when Frankl and his family were sent to a concentration camp where actually his dad died when he was there. And then in 1944, him and his remaining family were sent to Auschwitz where his mother and brother both died. And later his wife died in Bergen-Belsen. So in total, Frankl spent three years in four concentration camps. And the reason we're talking about him today is he's very much part of the existential philosophy area, really. He's really famous for founding what's called logotherapy, which is a school of psychotherapy, essentially, that looks at man's search for meaning as the central motivational force in in life. Frankel earned his PhD in philosophy after the war and was eventually awarded a professorship at University of Vienna. And he wrote around 39 books in total over the course of his career. But the most famous probably of those is Man's Search for Meaning, which is what we're going to talk about today. And that's the book that he wrote specifically about his experiences in the Nazi concentration camps. Originally published in 1946, and it became a bestseller in 1959 when it was translated into English. Oh, I came to the book some time ago. I think it was actually you who told me uh, four or five years ago as I was setting out getting into philosophy a bit more. And you said, oh, have you read Have you read this book, Man's Search for Meaning? So I'd never heard of it. So I got it. And to my relief, it was only a small book, 150 pages or so. Uh, and part of that is, is a bit of an addition that's been added on um, about what he did after he came out of the camps, which was his, he established logo therapy, which is meaning therapy. So yeah, I came to it uh, that way. And um, it was pretty, pretty brutal, really, because it's, it's a it's a book about mainly about the experiences of actually living through the the you know the horrors of the, uh, the the death camps really and all the things that Frankl saw people go through and how some people survived it as you know and why he felt that they managed to keep surviving it as well as obviously massively luck um, but and also why you know, what he noted down and the observations about people who, who just couldn't take it anymore and couldn't get through it. And, um, you know, so, you know, sort of they, they perished. So, you know, he got this very fly on the wall view of um, why people perhaps gave up on, you know, gave up on life and why some people, despite everything, managed to keep going. So, yeah, there's, it's, it's very hard reading in some ways because... It's so traumatic and it's so, so bad. You can't put yourself there. It's easy to think of it as an academic from a distance or, you know, but first and foremost, without even us analysing it or anything, it's a book that kind of just hits you, 
at different levels because in the first place, it's just really shocking. It's very well written, though, I think, isn't it? It's not clearly the subject matter is is brutal. Yeah. And it's I'm not for a minute saying that is enjoyable to read, but as a book, I think it's enjoyably written. The way he writes is it's just a nice style of writing. I think he has that really appeals to me in that book, even though the topic is brutal, he still makes it accessible. And like a lot of the existentialist philosophy and philosophers, he's not too dense with it, if that makes sense. Mm. It's it's very accessible and it's very practical, I think, in that sense, yeah. how he's written the book. Yeah, well, he's describing what he went through, isn't he? So he's very, you know, in, in terms of existential, it's very phenomenological. So it's his, it's his experience. And I think, what the why the you know the book says over a million copies sold on it doesn't it which is a you know a lot of people do that with their books and it doesn't you know that that speaks for itself in some ways it doesn't always mean the thing's good you know but in this case you know it's it's quite unique and I think that one of the reasons it has it has originally it has sold so many copies and been passed around is because there is that little bit of uh, it's easy to read uh, it his his experiences but ultimately. Ultimately, I think it's a. It was turned into a therapeutic book. It's actually passed around. I would. I would imagine not just because it's his the history of the the Holocaust. You know, if you were into the history of it and finding out facts, I think first and foremost it's pitched as a self help book, uh, which is kind of controversial. Which some people have criticised it for because you know, like you can never really make anything positive from that kind of stuff. Uh, but Frankel disagreed. And he went on to sort of make this as his pillar book for his uh, his future career and the movement of logotherapy, which he took on into his uh, psych- psychotherapy uh, and his treatment and then his general advice to how one might live a good life, which was basically to find your own meaning uh, in things no matter what. Uh, and then all the different branches of those types of meanings so you might find you know, three three ways he distinguished it was like you might find creative meaning in your life, you might find uh, like a, a, an experiential uh, meaning in your life, sort sort of you know like where you might go traveling or you like walking and things like that. The creative thing might be more like your hobby or something that you devise, something that you invent, something that you make unique to you. Uh, and then the, the the one that we're most common in a way, the attitudinal meaning, which is, you know, basically if you're ever thinking to yourself, what's the point, you know, or what's the point, or there's no, you know, and you're going down that route, it's like snap out of it and change your attitude. Because if you develop, you know, this pretty much existential view about being responsible f- for your attitude, existence precedes essence, uh, according to Sartre, that basically... No, sort your attitude out, start focusing on the right things, get you, you know, get yourself sorted out and create, create some meaning for yourself. So there, there, there are three areas he just, he sort of goes on. So he, he very much puts therapy at the foot of the person who's having the therapy and basically says, come on, ship shape, sort yourself out. Your only main problem in life is that you've known, you, you know, you, you're going around depressed, you're going around, you know, feeling worthless and so on. You just need to get some meaning potentially in those three areas. And in that sense, he was very, and logotherapy, which we will we'll probably dissect a little bit more, but 
the interesting thing for me on that about his therapy was it's very future focused. Yeah. So if we think back to the, you know, can we live in the moment episode we did, which was that the third one, I think yeah. it possibly was. Yeah, That's what we were talking about, weren't we? How there's, there's that push or, you know, just live in the moment, forget the past, don't worry about the future, just be, just be yeah. in that moment. I found I find Frankel quite therapeutic on that sense that he's like, no, the future is massive. That that's what you're living for. That's where the meaning is. It's in the future. And he gives some quite nice examples or an example of people, the people who did tend to struggle in the camps. For him, it was like they were trying to escape the present because obviously in that present moment, there's no way around it. You're in a horrific situation. And their their escape, the people that struggled that he observed, their escape was in the past. So they were thinking about what they had, what they were, what they'd done, and that was their way to escape the, yeah. you know, the horrific situation. But he he saw it as that that was an error. It was like no, you needed to have something thinking forward. You know, yes, that this current moment is bad, but you need something that has meaning for you that you're aiming towards in the future. And that, that's why I quite like the, I remember when I first, we first talked about doing an episode on this and when I first read the book, it must've been seven or eight, maybe nine years ago, even now, I didn't like his logo therapy stuff at the time. Cause it's very much two sections. Of the book, isn't it? You get the, the story of the, of what I'd been through and what I'd observed. And then this, maybe the last quarter is the logo therapy. And I remember back then thinking, oh, you know, it's too technical this, it's too theory based. And again, when I read it this time totally different perception of it i was like no I, I quite like this as a as a therapy and definitely that future focus appealed to me you know yes there's meaning have have that meaning yeah i think that's an interesting point separate to, to this as well that you've changed your mind about you know no man ever steps in the same river twice but i think i've said to you before i, I tweeted it the other day how I, I tweeted a section from the book and i said you know yeah. it, it does it always surprises me how you can read the same book at different periods and points in life and have a totally different experience of what's in there and there's been a lot of books over the years i that's been like that for me well that there's a few things there that's the beholder's share isn't it firstly can you understand the words you know when i reread it because i'd because i'd but by the way it's free on i'm on audible this book so i listened to it again so for anyone listening if you just go to audible and you, you know they, they're, they're giving it away for free yeah, there were words coming up that I would just was just yeah I got it because I've just done a, a four years studying a lot of it in, in different language, so it I must have t- it must have hit me differently this time. But yeah, that's a piece of advice every time, isn't it? I read the other day that you know it's sometimes better to read the same book twice than to read two or three, four or five different books because it you, you realise you know that things can. Or like there's, a, there's the beholder's share, 50% of what you interact with is always you bringing your perceptions to it. And they are often current perceptions. So you can always surprise yourself. And then when you change like that, like you've experienced some change in, in interpreting the book's usefulness, that probably prompts you to be a bit more open-minded about future books you read, you know, or even go revisiting certain things that you might have written off. You know, and that that that's kind of good as well when you're helping people. I find that in in with my coaching ideas and helping people that, yeah, three years ago I might have suggested something and they've just totally avoided it. But that doesn't mean that if I suggested it again, they wouldn't necessarily, you know, they might be into it. Or you try a certain coaching idea one year, but it only kick, they're only ready for that idea four years down the line. So you know, it's it that that's that stuff can help you. But yeah, interesting you said about that. What one of the things I thought was interesting in the book that stuck out for me was this 
concept of that the 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 p he was lucky because he got to go to a bit of a work camp. So if you weren't fit enough to go for work, you didn't survive anywhere. They just sent you straight to the chambers. So if you survived that, and you instead of you were sent left, you went right. You know, be right was ironically good news because you were going to carry on living. Left, although they didn't know it, meant the the gaff chambers. So once they got in there, they were obviously fit enough to work. And the critical thing was that those that could keep working and find meaning in the little bits of work that they were doing almost had a, like a reason to get up uh, and avoided the what he called like the Sunday neurosis feeling that he noticed further on in life, which was that feeling that you might get on a Sunday uh, at times, you know, you're not busy, there's nothing to do and you kind of don't know what to do with yourself. Maybe people don't experience that as much anymore because they can just bury themselves in the phones all day, can't they? But I definitely remember that sort of Sunday feeling as a kid and as growing up of a bit of anxiety and pointlessness because there's nothing to do, whinging a bit and getting a bit, what's the point? And I think related so to that, those people as well, he very much part of his observations were that the people who were, let's call them busy in normal life, mm. So, and, and by that I mean... Uh, maybe high status jobs, you know, important work that they were doing outside, higher incomes, you know, they've got that kind of standing. He saw them shrink because that was all outside and in there, they couldn't really take any meaning from it. Like you said, the work of just getting through the day, you know, doing the physical work that they had to do and just they couldn't do that. Whereas the people who had less of that, I don't know if they did maybe more menial jobs or no, but wasn't it that they were more thinkers, that they'd, yeah. they'd done a bit of reading and thinking outside? So at first they really suffered because it was like, this is horrible, but then managed to start utilising their brain to kind of use meaning and, and think their way out, of, you know, paradigm it and perspective it. After the original, you know, shock of it, where the, the people who felt quite high status outside, they held on to that for a while in the camps but as soon as that went because it's just stripped from you isn't it you go in there it's like we don't care you everyone's wearing the same uniform everything all your possessions everything's gone you are just there and and like you said you're only even there at that point because you're you're fit enough to work so there'll have been you know people who were maybe it's the wrong word but more worthy perhaps who were sent the opposite direction just because they were physically less robust you know and and obviously this is extreme and one of the criticisms of the book is it's so extreme that then how can you really go on and take what people were doing in absolutely extreme, you know, what would, you know, none of us know how we would react, you know, sort of thing in that situation. So therefore, how can you go to everydayness of like, you know, normalized lives and say, oh, I learned something from this real extreme situation because there must be so much stuff going on, like shock and grief and biological weakness and organism weakness and, you know, what what you think about the human race. So, you know, there's an unfairness. Like if you had experiences, you know, in the Arctic or on in the SAS or, you know, someone's got stuck out for two years on the North Pole. And, you know, how can, how can you really use those lessons from there when you're back in everyday life? Maybe you can, maybe you can't. But Frankel definitely was like, yeah, the lessons I learned in there you can definitely benefit from those lessons out here. One of those things was was that Sunday neurosis thing, where if you get up and you just think, what's the point? Uh, and you haven't got this little bit of, you know, like we were saying about Camus, you know, 
like you, you haven't got this pushing your boulder up your hill you know no matter how menial no matter how sort of repetitive or whatever if you can't find a bit of a buzz in it and you 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 know you can't find a reason to be happy despite what's going on the brain the organism starts to give up uh, which could be linked to you know when people have been married for 60 years and one of them passes away and the other one just gives up they call it dying of a broken heart, don't they? But you just don't know if there's the organisms like, well, there's no reason to carry on. Now, he said that I, 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 can, I can, one of the things that that got me, and it, he said that he'd seen some people get up in the morning in the, you know, in these huts where they all had to share. And, and basically, one or two of them had not move and they'd look at them and they wouldn't move. And then they'd just sneak down into the pocket, find a hidden cigarette and start smoking it, you know, knowing that they were, the guards were going to do him in for that because they had to get up and go out. And he said, and we, we knew that within two days they'd die because they quit, they'd given up and they'd gone, they'd gone for the instant pleasure of the cigarette. So, okay, let's presume that that was a, like that's something that really informed Frankel in it. And it did that, that to me reminded me of university years when I was at university, which I, I know we might be covering nostalgia soon and, and, you know, as a topic, which is, which is a bit more lighthearted. I did a bit of a Frank Lampard then, didn't I? Yeah. <laughs> Putting a joke in, in a tragic hey, situation. We need to do a, a Schadenfreude episode too after <laughs> the way things are gone. Oh yeah. Uh, what, what, it, what it reminded me of was I look back at university sometimes and I have no really fondness for it. And I've often wondered, like, I love I love my time at college. I love my time when I started work. But these sort of two or three, three, four university sort of years where uh, I went to Liverpool University and basically just got pissed all the time. <laughs> Didn't learn, wasn't into it. You know, it was all about, you know, worked in some record shops, spending all my money on tunes, going out. Wasn't doing any sport apart from a kickabout in the park. Now, at the time, it was pleasurable. At the time, you know, you're in that full-on life, but there's no meaning in it for me. So I'd, I, it reminded me of that. It kind of helped me understand a bit. I thought, why do I not look back at that time and really, really have any sort of fondness for it or any inside myself as much as I have in other situations, such as when I lived by myself at college and I was on my own and made it through and yeah, it was quite, quite meaningful for me to do that at a young age and still is, still provides like some good meaning and confidence but yeah and I just thought yeah I probably I just had I didn't have anything really meaningful going on I just went for the pleasures so I gave up on education and learning I didn't read any books I wasn't the I know this might be a typical student (laughs) but you know stereotypical young fresher student or whatever but no I and and since you know when I got to work and I started reading and I started getting on back into my squash and I got fit and I started to you know want to win matches and I started like coaching and coaching teams you know started with girls football and then squash and then doing lectures and trying to get you know better job and really improve myself started doing my NLP courses and, and it just went and went I think in a in a way I think that's existentially what's happened to me absolutely nowhere near the uh the holocaust thing i mean just meaning that I've, i think i found the ability or i found the importance of when i get up in the morning it's quite important to sort of make meaning out of even the most small silly things but also have some bigger things going on like bigger projects and i think that's 
you don't want that Sunday boredom, what's the point feeling. And I don't think that means you can't chill out. I think chilling out and relaxing and doing nothing, you know, I'm, I can, I'm well capable of that, but it doesn't feel meaningless to do that. So I took I I thought that was a good thing about Frank Cully. He, he was very much like, you know, I know there's a lot of cliches, but it's like you get out of life what you put in type thing. Action, you know, talk doesn't cook rice. You know, the Chinese, all them sort of action orientated, get on your bike and come on, let's get yourself. There's always a good place for you if you can create One it. One thing you mentioned a little bit there was you kind of referred to can you know, people who have been critical of Franco and his maybe interpretations of it. And, and I do wonder the yeah. extent to which can we understand something like that that we've not experienced? So there's no one who can say, well, Frankel's wrong or Frankel doesn't know what he's talking about because that was just his pure lived experience, wasn't it, that he documents in the book. And then his career beyond that was hit, again, was just all informed by that, just helping people. So I don't think anyone can dispute that. You might dispute the writing and the way the book was, you know, maybe examples that he used and stuff, but we can't dispute his experience. But I do find that interesting as a question. You know, can we ever understand something we've never experienced? You know, we were listening to a Jordan Peterson lecture this week, weren't we? And something he referred to in that reminded me of what we've been talking about here. He he refers to kind of inherent in the human condition is well limited in the face of unlimited complexity. So just this un- unfolding life ahead of us, it's there's so much complexity going on and just life is so complex in and of itself. But part of our human condition is we're limited. We're, we're never going to be able to understand everything, um, and if yeah. not most things. But we have we have to try and muddle through it because we're limited in that sense. So he yeah. talks about, he was referring it back to nihilism, again, so linking back to another episode we've done, where you get this weird scenario where because we're so limited as humans and the world is so complex, you either get nihilism at one end or you get kind of totalitarian rationalism at the other end yeah. and people tend yeah. to maybe swear between the two whereas frankel's bang in the middle isn't he you know he, he he's kind of trying and, and the existential yeah. view is really but when yeah when you mention about can we understand something we've never experienced so we can read frankel's book and we can you know we can empathize with him we can put ourselves in those situations through his descriptions but i've actually been to auschwitz I've been actually have been because I'm quite into quite fascinated by World War II. So I've been yeah. loads of different places around the world that have significance within um, right. World War II. But obviously, because of my family background, Polish, etc. What I did, I've been to Poland a few times, but I did do like a little bit of a, uh, not, I wouldn't call it a pilgrimage, but I just went on my own and did a little bit of traveling around Poland, like you know, traveling in other people, people who've come before me's footsteps. And I did go to Auschwitz. And I try to do it a bit more authentically, if that's the right word. Because it's, you know, anyone who goes to Krakow, it's kind of on the tourist trail, isn't it, right? You will do a day trip to Auschwitz. And I didn't want to do that. I wanted to do it yeah. very much on my own and make myself uncomfortable. So, because it's probably two and a half, three hours from Krakow, the, the main, like the city, right. on a train. But it's like a normal, like, commuter train. It, it's kind of going through the back and beyond. It's not, you know, it's like a really old rickety train. I thought, right, I'm going to do it that way. Outside of the tourist debates, no one really has any fondness for English people. So it's everything's in Polish. They don't really accommodate you that way. So I, I, I purposely, maybe didn't wasn't doing it purposely at the time, but thinking back, I put myself in that. Like, and just the, the, the thing of going into the 
um, the train station in uh, at the town where where Auschwitz is, and then walking up to the camps about a mile from the train station. So I kind of did it that way to make it a bit more um, visceral. But it's a weird, yeah. and this is the point I'm making, which I'll eventually get to. Is can you understand something you've never experienced? Even being there and walking around and seeing all the stuff that people like Frankel talk about and that you see and you you kind of you grow up with the mm. stories. Even then, it doesn't really feel that real. Right. It's a weird. It's a very. It was a very weird vibe at Auschwitz because it's clearly this like brutal place of real significance. Mm. But there's like a theme park vibe to it. So you go there, but like I said, it's on the tourist trail. So you've got buses turning up. And it might be like school buses with kids on a day trip from school. So they're all running about and jolly as kids are. You've got actual tourists where they've got on a bus in Krakow and it's a, you know, like a tourist excursion. Um, So it's like, it's like a weird theme park vibe, but then the staff there are really, you know, Mm. they're straight faced and it's like, you know, you're up and it's like, they kind of ground you a little bit. But I found that strange, just the, the, the theme parkiness of it. But I did quite a nice bit around where you have you have a guide, but you're just wearing a headset, mm. so you don't have to be in earshot of them. Mm. So you're walking around kind of roughly on your own, and they're just explaining what you what you're seeing in some of the buildings. Right. And, and it was a really strange experience because one thing that I took from it was, you know, they, they're showing you stuff where it's like, right, and this is where that happened, and it's it's meant to be like impactful, and they're trying to like hit you with the, you know, this yes. is how brutal this place was, but you can't imagine you know, being there in the moment, um, even though you try. But the sense I got was like, and this was weird, there's a there's a bird on the front of, and I'm laughing at your wallpaper in your background there, it reminds me of it. There's a bird on the front of Frankel's book. I don't know if it's on the same edition you've got. And that was something I noticed when I was there. It was a beautiful day, hot, really sunny day, not a cloud in the sky, and you're walking around, and the birds are singing. It's quite green, the areas around it, like trees and like, and you're walking around, and... Yeah, yeah. The fences are quite visceral, and some of the bill you know you're in what was a prison camp essentially. No, but it was in that, and I'm thinking that's what I remember thinking. God, I wonder what that felt like. So a bird would fly in, land on a branch next to you, and it's just you know pecking, out, and then maybe it just flies off over yeah. the fence, and it's it's flitting in and out. Whereas you're stuck in there. Yeah, and I had a real sense of nature just does not give a shit. Mm-hmm. What this is men doing stuff to the a man doing this to itself. Like all these fences and brutal things that were going on. That doesn't happen in nature. It was man made. Like and the birds didn't really the birds have been a bird, isn't it, flying around and wasn't there that, that line in it, that it's the famous line, isn't it? That, that this this was a place where man invented the gas chamber, but man also walked into the gas chambers with kind of head held high, wasn't it? I uh, saying a prayer, saying the Jewish yeah. prayer. You know, like that's one end of the. You know, man can do this and man can do that. It can be, you know. It so was much. bizarre in that sense, though, that you're looking at all this man-made, constructed evil, like the barbed wire and everything, and all this, the ridiculous stuff that they did to each other there. So, if I was question, did did you, you know, obviously you've got a few sort of connections in some strange sort of connected way in you in yourself a bit did you get any meaning from that that from that trip definitely just understanding because my polish grandparents on my dad's side my, my granddad his dad was german they lived over the kind of the german side of the country near the border yeah. my granddad was polish he was conscripted into the german army like forced into the mm. german army to fight for the germans at that point a scare and then my grandma was she lived in a little town near krakow 
um, and they met up and escaped. And they had like a really mad story. Like my mum always said, you should write a book about this one day. But right. I could always tell as a kid with with my grand, she would. There were certain days she would want to tell you stuff, and you know, it, it was just in the moment. Yeah. She she felt like telling you, and there's others you could just tell. You'd maybe ask her something, and she just didn't want to go near it. it was, but yeah, I maybe do regret that a little bit. I could have could have maybe yeah. got more of their story down. And... It, it, when you came away from it, did it did, had it did it give you any any sort of I don't know? Like Heidegger talks a lot about your legacy, and 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 you know we're, we're very much through time. And as you get older, sometimes you you, you start to appreciate your legacy, and you're almost like you, there's a bit of responsibility sometimes or debt to the past. You get any of that? You've got to you've got to take that on uh, in, to make a heritage of yourself or something. Frankel talks about that. Yeah, I don't know if it was some. It, there was definitely a thing of going back and just being more appreciative of yeah. where they've come from and that the journey that they deserve that at least. Yeah, and 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 just kind of like I said, walking in their footsteps a little bit was was quite nice. That and yeah. because I, I wanted to purposely go on my own, I didn't want it to be like a holiday. Yeah, I think. I sometimes watch these shows, you know, the who do you think you are? And they go back generations. And I just think, gosh, you know, they're very emotionally affected. Things go on like that, don't they? Your meaning your meaning can come through your heritage and your line. And obviously that must be linked to your children and going forward. And I know Frankel in the book, he talks a lot about that, doesn't he? About not knowing whether his wife was alive or not. And one of his key things was, it was kind of irrelevant that if she was alive or she hadn't been because it got for him just a state of my meaning is love will conquer hate. So every day I keep going, I'm, 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 I'm like, I'm on the side of love. That almost became his attitude in the end when he had absolutely nothing left. Type. I mean, one of the interesting criticisms I read on it, you know, you say criticism, don't you? But they don't mean they're, they're criticizing the man. They're just the the psychotherapists were looking at logo therapy and saying, "Is it all that?" You know, like, okay, I get it. You went through that experience. Don't deny that you've done an unbelievable thing. That, you know, Frankel, you've invented logo therapy, meaning therapy. It's helped so many people. But would it help everybody in this hospital as the only treatment? And I think that I think that it's sold a little bit. You know. Uh, one of them said that it's it became a bit religious, a bit more th- theology rather than psychotherapy. In almost like it sort of got to a point where it was like it said everybody has to create their own meaning and find their own meaning, and you live in your own life, you know, and you, and every meaning's relative to you. So it was highly relative. It wasn't just as this is the meaning of life, do this. But in a way, it was religious because meaning became like meaning became the religion. It became. You know, just you know, we see now, like, find your purpose, find your meaning, find, you know, and that can be taken on too much and it becomes almost uh, theology, it becomes religious, where some some of the people sort of said, what it does do, it, it denies the present pain. It does deny, if you happen to be a forward-thinking, futuristic type being, you know, that's really into that, then it might work for you. But for some people who are actually in the the shit right now, you know what I mean, in the depths for for whatever reasons, you know, psych, psychologically, it's it's not as simple as just going in there and going, you know. By the way, have you? I, I know what's wrong with you. you. You've you've nothing to live for. Just just find something to live for, and I'll see you next week. But this is what I'm saying around understanding what you can't experience. So 
even though I went to Auschwitz and there was even really visceral bits where they, they had these kind of what would have been like cubic and they were kind of, like standing cells. So they were like really small. Imagine like a shower cubicle built out of breeze blocks and it was like no kind of lid on it, but just sides. And it was like, these were like the standing punishment. And it, you, you stood in there and you'd think um, you could fit four blocks in there, yeah. let's call it without it being it would be tight but it wouldn't be and it'd be like yeah there'd be 20 people stood in here that was the punishment so even that you were physically in the in the and you you could almost like viscerally feel what it would have felt like because you're standing in the same bit but even that i still don't i could just walk out it's not the same and and that's what i was kind of hinting at i saw something actually the other day you might you'd have quite liked it it was about um virtual reality I think it was on like a BBC breakfast program. And this company had started with these VR headsets. And essentially what they were trying to create was the old, the late 1980s, like rave culture. You know, know, the original, did you see it? Yeah. Saw it. It looked brilliant, right, didn't yeah, it? And it was like the people were yeah. buzzing. It was like, oh, it was like, a... and I did think, I wonder if something like that. So they've got these VR headsets, and it was like you went right to the start of like even in the car and trying to find this field in the middle of nowhere yeah. and yeah. find a phone box to ring the guy who had the coordinates on the map for where this rave was going to be. And then you know they went through and they did the actual rave and stuff, and they were buzzing off it. People who were there back in the day. So it obviously felt quite real to them yeah now this is a bit of a darker use of that but i wonder if something like that would help with things like meaning so if you're someone who's in the modern day struggling like you say someone like frankel would just say well you just need to mm. find some meaning to just do this and it's it's the negative aspect of it maybe if yeah. you, there is a way that you could almost put a virtual reality yeah. headset on someone so that they could feel physically and mentally what it was like yeah. to be in a concentration camp I don't think it takes, you know, that, 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 I mean, obviously with the rave thing, they were revisiting a memory that they'd already physically had. But they had, if you remember, they had people who'd never lived through those times. And they were like, you know, they were. Oh, right. Yeah. So maybe it'd be a different, a different feeling if you don't, you know, if it brought back feelings rather than created brand new ones. Yeah. I think, I think one of the things Frankel said was try and live your life as if you were leading it the second time around. You know, it's a little bit on the Nietzsche's more, a more fatty thing. You know, have no regrets and and so on. Live as if eternal fate. You know, for, you'd live this life forever and ever and ever perpetually. So make your decisions based on the fact you're going to repeat this and repeat it. So he said, you know, try and live as if you're living the second time round, having learned the mistakes of the first time. <laughs> you know, so in a way, that's again, that's that you'd be the virtual reality there. I suppose you're playing with time a little bit. And that would give you an opportunity to perhaps, you know, live an alternate scenario and think, oh, I don't want that. I think you're getting that, aren't you? I mean, it's, it's strange, isn't it, really? It's a bit weird. We, it was a bit weird listening to it last week. I was glad to get through it, really, the, the, the camps parks. It's pretty, pretty depressing, but obviously meaningful, you know, with the Ukraine situation. So whatever the politics are, whichever way you are, you know, some of the things that have started to kick off there, uh, are happening, like, you know, that are happening now. That you fact, you can, I found myself being a bit like, well, there's worse things going on in life. You know, if if I have a bad morning or one of the players loses a match or Everton lose again, <laughs> no, no, but you know what I mean. You 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 jump from like you 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 find out you kind of quickly. I don't know. You still feel that little pettiness, that petty. Yeah, you know, I think because it's meaningful to you, isn't it? Oh, I want my sports team to win. Oh, I want my player to win. I want. 
you know, I want to have a good meal, not a burnt meal. I can't believe, you know, I want the weather to be nice. It's blooming raining again. I can't believe it. It's not fair. We should be having that, you know, we've had some sun. We should have more sun. Or I've booked a holiday and I've gone away and it's raining. Typical. Can't, but yeah, you know what I mean? You're watching the news and just, and it's like way, 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 like more deep and serious. But you still, so even though you kind of know that, you're still petty and you're still in your own life making up and that that's something about you kind of yeah you can use perspectives and thing but you, you've really got to be some kind of i think this was what logotherapy was a bit criticized for as well that if you're not a spiritual person who can do big picture all the time it's quite hard logotherapy seems cold for the less spiritual because it's like look mate i know you're telling me to get meaning but my kids can't eat this has gone this and i am a failure shut up you know and i i've 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 had to be learned that as a as a coach as a bit of a therapist and so on there are people who aren't ready for it they don't want you to come in and fight make them find meaning and things like that they, they don't necessarily they just and, and this was the thing about the some of the people who died frankel was a bit criticized as well for towards the end trying to keep people alive who wanted to die and they were like, you should have just let them die because they, that was their way out. That was their right. That was their peace. You got a bit wrapped up on, for you, I get it, for your own survival and your own sake. You found meaning in the well, meaning. Well, it was meaning in the suffering, therapy. wasn't it? Yeah, meaning in the suffering. and me. So you, you got out of it, but then sort of preached it to everybody. But that wasn't mean that you're a bad person because you helped a lot of people. But there were certain people who didn't want you to be preached, they didn't want to be preached at thank you very much you were kind of just going for more of your own like convictions that you what you were saying was was absolutely brilliant and i get it it was fulfilling for you and your intentions were to help but you didn't realize one of the unintended consequences of telling everybody they just needed meaning all the time was you actually demeaning demeaning their pain and suffering and I think that's what I've learned. I'll take that to a silly scale. You know, I've, sometimes like, I'm a bit of a pragmatist. I'm a fixer. I try and move on. Come on, let's get on with it. Life's too short. Come on, positive. I think over the years, I have got a little bit better at like when people have a bad time, just leaving them with it a little bit and not just diving in with a, with a oh, I know, we'll turn this shit into gold. Just think of it like this. It sometimes that's not what some people can handle or need and it comes across as a little you know and that's what i'm particularly was getting at in my phd all this stuff about well-being and and all this stuff about growth mindset you know and, and resilience training it's like sometimes don't deprive people of the struggle straight away you see who do you think you are to take somebody else's pain away all the time this is a bit of a a, a bit of a, a flip side to yeah meaning Finding making meaning out of things, different attitude, get creative, you know, have a reason to live, go back into your past, think of your future, buzz off your projects, find things to do. Yeah, it's another way that you might combat the the ambiguity of your existence. But a bit like in the nihilist episode we did and the with the absurdity, you know, there are other ways to look at the world, <laughs> another world. And who's to say pleasure is a you know, Freud was all about will to pleasure so who's to say you know going for pleasures who's to say that people are listening to this and going well i was at university i just had so much pleasure i never stopped thinking about it It was the best days of my life <laughs> you know who's to say that 
you know, not having meaning and just diving in for loads of good times is is a, is you know hedonists would, would would be more like that, wouldn't they? So that's I'll just put in a caveat. Yeah, a million copies sold, and I, and I think that because it's so serious and it's so so brutally hard to understand that the Holocaust stuff, it it is even now I feel a bit of an idiot criticizing it because you're almost not allowed to, are you? Because it's so so raw and bad but i'm not criticizing his ex his, his his what he said he went through and i'm not criticizing his i'm just saying there's limits to the logo therapy ideas of all you need is meaning and everything will i be think fine. that's probably a a tough one for a lot of people because it does he does almost reduce it to that where you know the focus on the future is a key part of it and then it's like well i can't even envisage anything in the future you know if you're in a particularly bad set of circumstances it is a kind of a little bit of a get out to then just say yeah well then just find meaning in the suffering to suffer it is very clear that you don't suffering isn't necessary to to find meaning or to have meaning but he is kind of saying that you can still find meaning in suffering so even in the worst of circumstances yeah if he doesn't if you can't envisage your future or blah, blah 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 just find meaning in the suffering and that that is is kind of almost your duty you see, and he, and he does, he is kind of like, he does see it a little bit as a get out of jail, doesn't he? The people who just think, yeah, that's not for me. Yeah, I think just on that though, I think the suffering bit, you do see a lot, don't you? You know, where people have had tragic circumstances. So, you know, look at the, the, the mind, you know, MND, you know, with, with the Rob Burrow the, yeah. and, and Kevin Sinfield, for example, you know, you got that's all. You see how charity and and projects and they do lots of things to remember people. And I can completely imagine myself leaning on this. You know that like something tragic happens and just having to do it. You know the charity for forty years because it there'd have to be a point to that person's existence. I, I can see where it's so good and so powerful. But again, I think that would be down to the individual because I think that the other people would go, would cope with that in a different way mm. and they wouldn't need to feel the need to go and make massive meaning out of things. But I, you know what I mean? I think it's, it depends. It just gets down to the individual at that time. You know, how much suffering are they actually suffering and how, what are they capable of? I also think he, there isn't really a separation between the mind and the body. It's as if you're just one. And you know, with your bioenergetic stuff, Sometimes it's it's you're an organism, and if your physiology is gone under big time, the mind can't function straight anyway. And we all have different propensities to be able to even off sleep, you know, and and sleep deprivation or food or starvation. You know, there's chemical things going on in the organism, isn't there, in the cellular level that if you yeah. if you just sort of there's no there's no there's no you might consciously want to think things are meaningful, but you hear people that have got depressed or, you know, felt like committing suicide and things like that or have, and they've got like loads of good things in their life, loads of things to live for, and they've just still done it. And and, and there are chemical explanations for that. So there's a mind and body separateness that I don't think Frankel, he doesn't bring the biological element into it. Yeah, And then the existentialists don't do that. And that's what Sartre was criticised for a lot. I think Simone de Beauvoir was a bit better. She understood that a bit more. Sartre was very much like, no, you're responsible for your life. Everything you do, if you don't do it authentically, is rubbish. You're living in bad faith if you do anything else. 
uh, you know, and and get you know sort it out uh, and get get to grips with your situation or else. And I think that I'd, I'd, I'd you know, although I am like that with lots of things, I'm, I still think that there's some people are genuinely like ill and you know suffering biologically as well as mentally. Well, on that biological level, I always remember in the book he talks about you know they get such little rations food wise and and the the very little bread that they got. He comments on you know the people who would just eat it in one go and then the people who would like keep it and just just nibble on a little bit you know every few hours and the, and kind of delayed the gratification even of yeah. that little tiny bit of pleasure that they had but everything biologically must have been just screaming yeah. for for energy and nutrition and the, and what you need so imagine the willpower in you've actually got a bit of food in your hand your body's demanding some kind of sustenance and you still override it because you know that i'm going to delay that because it gives me yeah. a bit of meaning to my afternoon. So if I, I just got to get through the morning and then on yeah. the afternoon, I've got my bread in my pocket that I can have. So that, that definitely struck me about that biologically. Yeah. I, I also think that like, you know, we've said it before with some of these books where, you know, like, like the people who win the gold medal, the people who do well, the people who get to the top, they write the books, don't they? And the, the ones that do all, you know, the autobiographies because they're famous and you'll, you want to know how did Tiger Woods do that? How did, you know, Serena Williams do that, Michael Phelps. So you read all the training and everything that they did, but you don't read the books of all the people that did all the same stuff and came 50th. <laughs> you, do, you don't, you know, you only get, you know, you don't get like podcasts. We've been invited on with people and psychologists who go, yeah, I've helped this person. I do this, I do that. You know, hear about all the people they work with and it didn't work, you know, same intention, same process, same help. They don't get publicized or marketed. Doing the, that bread idea there, saving a bit. I bet, you know, there could have been loads of people who tried all them strategies and still went under. There could have been people who was really had a lot of meaning and still just couldn't cope. That's what, that's, that's what's, I suppose that's hard for someone when you're trying to get a movement started and you're trying to, it, 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 it's hard to put the caveats in there. I suppose you've got to sell it as quite a convincing way through. That's part maybe of the therapy. And I know Carl Rogers, who's one of the all time best ever therapists who started person-centered counseling and really the start of coaching in the true sense of the word coaching you know this concept of draw it out from them don't add information in draw everything out not not in a in a freudian way but much more in a in a conversational way uh, rather than the sort of couch dream thing uh, subconscious stuff he, he said frankel was you know his favorite and the best guy ever you know in terms of what he what he got going you know what i mean it's 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 just like we were saying with the spiritual stuff if it's helping and it's a good thing and it floats your boat and it gets you going you can criticize it but as a one-size-fits-all approach answer all you need is meaning i think there are criticisms in it but I, but personally i i, I mainly agree with it <laughs> well, yeah the, another thing that i really like about the logo therapy reading it back again was he is very counter the common typical view of mental disease isn't he so everything you know if, if you're depressed take these pills you know like you just said the psychoanal psychoanalysis lie down on the couch that he's kind of anti that he's very much that yeah you know, yeah despair and feeling a little bit down now and again and the normal ups yeah. and downs of life that is not a mental disease and it's it's actually quite normal to feel like that 
a lot of the yeah. time. So he's, he's, yeah. he, he goes against the grain in that sense. A big thing that he was that resonated with me as well around that he's, he's kind of saying that the modern day human, and this was you know, a few years ago now that he was saying this, but it's probably even more prescient now that we've we've lacked or we don't really have any instinct anymore, and we don't really have any tradition anymore either. So you've got people in this that they're, essentially they're just feeling this tension that they don't really know what they should be doing. They don't know how they should be living, like I say, because the instinct's gone and the tradition's gone. So you're in this like no man's land. Yeah. So he he said that, well, that, yeah, that tension, that's that's yeah. normal. And, and actually that's a part of good mental health is feeling that tension and almost using that to your advantage rather than seeing it as a pathology and something yes. we need to treat and call it a neurosis and give it a name yes. and then give it some medication. Yes. And maybe that's why he got a little bit of criticism as well. Well, no, I mean, that's why I always like Simone de Beauvoir more because she talked about the ambiguities of the, of, you know, like, the, you know, you're a subject and you're an object in the world. The world's acting on you and you're acting on the world. So you've got to, you've got to create meaning and do things and interpret and get off your arse and sort, you know, and find things that make you tick, right? And you've got to do that every day. And see, so and that means even seeing the wonderment in life at times. You know, go and see the beauty. You know, start to notice things. Start to get your perspectives and your perceptions better, right, on an individual level. Saying that, the world is still acting on you as well. So there's still things coming your way that are out of your control. Going back and forward between that, going be- between those poles. You know, like we, you know, the the, the Sartre thing of as well of you are who you are and you are who you aren't yet <laughs> you know you say it every time people are constantly fixated with the future going when am i going to get this when am i going to get that when am, when will this happen for me well that's just how it is so get on with it but then if you do too much of that and get stuck at that end and getting on with things you do miss out you miss you miss the the ability to notice what's good now that's just one yeah, you're an individual and you're part of a group. You are, you can be very individual, you know, but yeah, you, you know, you are part of your family. You are part of a society and you need people. So all that, you know, all these things, again, these, you've got to try and make, make sense of the, the tension between those. And that's, that's it. You're not supposed to be in some constant state of blissed out, like lack of confusion. And I think when you're taking, you know, antidepressants and the easy thing is, oh, I feel a bit hollow, I feel a bit empty, I'm not so sure what I'm doing, I don't know what's happened, you know, I've, I've, I've nothing to get going for and I've tried everything, people say, tried everything and, and they haven't tried everything, they've tried a few things for a few short space of time and then they get on a treadmill of drinking too much, you know, of pleasure, instant pleasures, uh, eating too much, coming up with excuses why they can't exercise, noticing things that aren't good, probably dragging up stories from the past about why it's difficult you know basically being biased and predicting starting to predict stuck states and things that aren't going to go well practically probably getting into more debt and not being you know buzzing at work not everything not going well then in a way they've that that's like you've dived out you've dived out you've opted out and it's got it gets to a point where it's too much and you probably do need pills and drugs but what you've got You've got a chance as a human to sort of see down the road. You've got a chance to to say, if I if if I don't make my bed today, it might not mean anything, and I just leave my bed. I haven't made it right, and I don't brush my teeth, and I don't do the pots before I leave the house, and I just leave it till later. If I if I start those habits now, in five months, 
you know, it's only a small thing now, but it'll be a big thing. You know, once that crumbles, once I stop making my bed, the next thing you know, and I'm not ironing my shirts, the next thing you know, I'm not paying my gas bill on time. The next thing you know, my car's a disgrace. I don't want anyone to come in it because it's constantly messy. The next thing is my relationships are cracking. The next thing is I hate my job. And the next thing is I'm 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 depressed. I think Frankel was getting at a lot of that. I think he was getting like get, you know find meaning in tiny little things and in some of the bigger things. Uh, and you can go a long way to keeping your mind like on track because life's How tough. How do you think? So Frankel actually quotes Nietzsche in the book, doesn't he? So Nietzsche's quote: "He he who has any why, sorry, he who has a why to live can bear almost anyhow." That is almost like Frankel's thesis boiled down, isn't it? It's like even in the worst circumstances, you've still got a choice of attitude. Yeah. So how you actually react to those circumstances, you still yeah. choose that. And for him, that freedom, so the freedom to choose is essentially what makes us human beings. You can That's the one thing you can never have taken from you. And I wondered, yeah. remember I sent you that, like a motivational video of that American bishop, TDJ, and he's giving it, you know, until all hell bro- breaks loose. You don't know. Yes. You don't know what you've got until all hell breaks loose. You don't know what you can take until the pressure is applied to your life. You don't know what you can endure until people stab you in the back and walk away from you. You don't know how much courage you have until you've been under fire and under struggle and under tribulation. You can't learn what's in you sitting back in a lazy boy chair hitting the remote control watching HBO and Cinemax. But when all hell breaks loose, that's when you get to see what you got. So we can sit here and theorize and imagine and just think about it. But I wondered, what what's your gut instinct on how you think you would deal with something like that? So whether it's, you know, putting yourself in Frankel's shoe, so someone knocks on your door now, chucks you in the back of a van, and then next minute you're in a prison. Yeah, I I, I think I'd go to pieces pretty, pretty rapidly. I think I'd be too soft and... I, I, genuinely think that I'd, I'd be so upset I'd be useless but if I could get through that bit I think that's when I would begin to rationalize it you know and reorientate myself there's no way you know do you know what I mean I think I might I might be able to do you, that. I, I would say you're someone who has a lot of meaning in life so you know from from Frankel's perspective yeah but it's fragile isn't it really everything's fragile you know you, you you're going along and unless you've come through some really, really tough experiences, you know, I think we're all very fragile, especially, you know, we've, what we've we been through, really, you know, and there's things we've, like, we, we know about. We've had the probably cushiest of lives ever, and in some ways I think we are very, very, very fragile, and there's probably not many people, you know, of our age that have, you know, been fired off to war or sent to prison or, you know what I mean, and all this stuff of, you know, in our kind of friends we know and stuff. So, yeah. I think that uh, you've got to you you're in when you when you put when you're actually put into a live situation, it's completely different. And that, that's it? what I mean. I was I was maybe thinking, you know, could VR play a role in that? But how how can anyone say, oh yeah, this is 
this is the meaning that I have in life and this is my purpose. But can you ever truly know that until you've been in that, where it is a situation of life and death, it's, it's, you're in the depth of pain and like suffering and stuff. Can you ever truly know meaning? We can all think we might, but can you until you've been in, say, a Frankel type situation? So that, and that's what I meant by, well, you can criticize him as an author and criticize his theories and stuff, but you can't criticize his experience because that's it. That's what he took from that experience. So how can anyone, Jordan Peterson, I was talking about, until you've lived the experience, you can't possibly know it, can you? No, and that's phenomenology, isn't it? That's the crux of what I was doing really in, in my research on on how to live, how one might live well through a sporting life. Go, then you you talk to people who've done it and you leave it at that. You don't interpret it. You just go, that's what they said. And then you, you take from it what you will. I think what it helps you with is empathy. And I think as a teacher, as a therapist, as a, as a person, as a human, you don't go diving in with your assumptions as much. So although I, I think that people have been lazy or they've been stuck, or, you know, and I think, oh, they could have sorted that out, you know, they, you know, the reason that they're in that mess, they could have fixed that back when they were 18 and the, the decisions they made back there has caused this. But again, you weren't in that person's life, were you? You weren't that You weren't that organism, you weren't that person. Not only have you not walked in their shoes, you know, that's, you, you've never been them in their shoes. If, even if you could walk in their shoes, you're still you walking in their shoes. You're not them walking in their shoes kind of thing. You know, that's another layer. So yeah, I think that helps you as a, you know, a, Stops you getting frustrated with family members. Stops you get pissed off at you know at other people so quickly. You've got more more chance of before you judge them and go flying in with your solutions and your sort of ten pot bit pot wisdom and bloody solutions to all the problems. You, you kind of like try and see that individual situation. I do that a lot with sports parents. I'm always, you know, I wrote a book, book about how you help parents in sport and the general vibe is bloody parents were a nightmare. We live in the youth and all that stuff. And it's just like a general line. You can't, you get, you know, you know, you can't just say that. You've never been that per, that parent with that particular child in that sport, in that situation, in their life. You, you know, that's a really good starting place. So, yeah, you read, you read this book, Man's Search for Meaning, and I'd, I'd recommend you just read it and, and, and almost almost take it in as a, as a story and don't try and analyse it or anything. And then when it does the logo therapy bit at the end, if you're a therapist or if you're a coach or if you're interested in self-improvement, maybe have a play around with some of the logo therapy ideas. And, and so overall, out of 10, John, what would you give it? <laughs> I would give it, it's a solid eight for me. It is, and it's an easy read for people and obviously not subject matter wise, but quite a short book. Like I said, it's well written. Yeah. It's not dense philosophy and real like hardcore, you know, like Heidegger and you know some of the people that, oh. that you drop in now and again. <laughs> That's tough reading. Whereas this, I think just an everyday man on the street, woman on the street can just pick it up and take some like really useful yeah. meaning from it, can't they? Definitely, yeah. I definitely recommend it. I'd give it an eight and a half. Why don't you buy a copy and give it to Frank? I reckon he's struggling a bit at the minute for some meaning. <laughs>